Hi, I'm Jonathan Mann. And I'm Matt Condon. And this is Digitally Rare, a podcast about digitally owned things and what that means now and later in the future. Oh, yes. Uh, we are we are back from a from a from a kind of long hiatus, yeah, right? Um, unintentional, but unintentional. Uh, did we do the Fanny episode before or after Christmas? We did it just before, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then it's like, and then the holidays happen, and then right. t- t- hard time scheduling. You're in Chile now, for, for yeah, weirdly coming to you live <laughs> from from Chile. That's amazing. Uh, we'll hear about that more, but. First, we're going to introduce our guest. I'm very excited to have Matt Stevenson on the podcast. I first be- I first uh, became aware of Matt Stevenson. You uh, wrote this Medium post a while back. Was that in August that you did that? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was right at the end of August. Sort of burst on the on the crypto scene. What about you, right. Matt Condon? When when was your first? Uh, no, exactly the same. Yeah. I think uh, I forget who shared that article to me. Um, I want to say it was Maria Paula, and we immediately started um, a fight to see who could be Matt's new best friend <laughs> and and usher him into the crypto community. So Matt, <laughs> well, with, with that, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, honored to be here. I love your podcast. Sincerely. Uh, we, yeah, awesome. We, thanks. We appreciate that. So I, I want to, I, I mean, there's so much to talk about, and there's so much to go into, Um with your background and everything uh why don't you give us a sense of like where you where you're coming you're like the direction you're coming at this stuff from um your mm-hmm, background mm-hmm. as a in in economics and all that stuff yeah definitely um i've been in academia for a while so uh i'm a phd in behavioral economics and i'm published and all that and most of my recent experience prior to blockchain was in you know publishing and doing research and running experiments and so on um I got into Bitcoin, which I know it's kind of cliched to do the guy into Bitcoin <laughs> thing. I got out of Bitcoin, let's say, really early and <laughs> basically ignored the whole space for a long time. Um, nice. and it wasn't until uh, really CryptoKitties mm. that I started to think it was interesting again. Um, and so I, I think I more or less combined the interest in uh, NFTs and CryptoKitties and um, this sense of the a big problem that I'd been working on as part of my PhD and uh, just something that I'm thinking about called the Erovian problem, which is this mm. problem of information sharing and seeing if those could be Let's solved. Let's go straight into that. And I want you to speak, okay. you know, um, I want you to just go straight yeah. into the story about um, the doctor with the kings and the stuff that we heard you say, that we heard you right, tell at the right. NFT summit. Just go straight yeah. into that story because I just, it's such a great story and I think it's very compelling. What's the problem called again? Well, so the problem is often called the Erovian problem. It's a way of saying the last name Arrow and putting an uh, I-A-N at the end of it. So right. Adjectivize that. Oh, yes, perfect. <laughs> Adjectivized <laughs> Erovian. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, so there was this guy named William Chamberlain. This is the 16th century in, um, in England. And he is a French Huguenot um, who immigrates to England. And he has this seemingly magical ability, and his ability is to, to, he can go into a problematic birth, 
uh, where the baby's life is threatened or the mother's life is threatened. And if you allow him to deliver the baby, he can save the baby's life and the mother's life in many cases. And nobody knows how he does this. And um, in fact, he's, he knows that nobody knows how he does this. And so he's very, very careful uh, that nobody find out. So when he goes to um, deliver these children, he'll blindfold everybody in the room and he'll walk in with this device that's hidden in a box. And when he opens the box and uses the device, he's clanging and having people clap and make all kinds of noises. Um, and then he does the thing with the device, saves the mother's life, saves the baby's life, puts the device back in the box and leaves. And this was incredibly successful at guarding the invention. I think it sounds know, often, magical. Yeah, it does. It sounds mystical. I mean, I, even people probably thought he was a wizard. I wonder if he encouraged that. <laughs> Certainly. Um, <laughs> but oftentimes we get told this story that there's something simultaneous about inventions. Many times, you know, the telephone or evolution, they were both kind of invented or thought of at the calculus. same time. And maybe it's just calculus. Yeah. Leibniz and Newton or, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Leibniz. Leibniz yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, that there's something in the air. But in a lot of these cases, if you look, there are allegations of theft or they're, uh, they're actually more different. And just over time, we say, oh, those were kind of the same invention. Mm -hmm. And this makes a really great, um, I guess, experiment because he kept this really, really secret. And by keeping it secret and using this bells and whistles, uh, literally bells and whistles, <laughs> black box trick, he went from being this like poor, penniless French Huguenot to being the royal obstetrician uh, in England. And for, I think, four generations of his children. Four generations. Were, God. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, imagine what that wealth is to have intergenerational wealth guaranteed for four right. generations. Uh, royal obstetricians, all because he kept this thing secret. And so there was this bounty the world had. I mean, there were obstetricians at the time. They didn't call themselves that midwives or something, right? There was this bounty. If you could figure out what fit in a box about yay size that would save a woman's life and a baby's life, you know, you could guarantee untold wealth and save countless lives. Nobody could figure this out. And turns out, uh, I can't show the picture as a punchline Yeah, line the picture here. as a punchline is great, but, but it's, <laughs> it'll, I think it still works. Okay. It's, it's salad tongues, basically. They're called the, <laughs> they're called the Chamberlain forceps. And you fit them around a, a baby's head. And what's really fascinating to me is that it's not like we didn't have tongs before. So there's, a, there's this beautiful old uh, Jewish story about how God gave us tongs because you have to have tongs to forge tongs. You have to pull them <laughs> out of the fire with tongs. Right. So That's tongs funny. have been around, you know, since time immemorial. And yet curving them around a baby's head is just way too hard for humans to possibly solve novel as, a, as, as a technology. Hell. Yeah, yeah. Novel as hell. Um, and so I, I guess to me, this just paints how stark of a problem this can be. Hmm. We want Chamberlain to be able to give this away because if he had, um, he could have been saving countless lives. I mean, this technology literally, traveled around the world. Literally. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable, yeah. but he has no incentive to, because as soon as he gives it away, it's like, oh yeah, I mean, curving a tongue. Yeah. That's interesting. I was just thinking about that. Right. And all that intergenerational wealth. Whoops. Where did that go? Right. Yes. And this is the Erovian problem. This is mm. the problem is once he tells this ability to capture value is, is no longer his, right? Mm. It's the world's. So we want you to tell, but now we no longer have an incentive to reward you because we know. Right. Yeah. And that definitely applies to our decentralized, like 
Well, it applies to a lot, honestly. Yeah. Like it applies to society. It applies to all of the patent and copyright stuff. Absolutely, and I mean, I think you know when you go to these crypto conferences or you hang out in crypto Twitter, we have an open culture in this sense of like talking to each other, but in sharing. But everybody I know has some notebook full of ideas yeah. that one day they're going to do, and they're not yep. sharing it because they want the opportunity to do it. There's that slight, slight chance. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've got one of those as well. I've I've got a list of um of uh, good brands and they're just they're just names that could be like streetwear <laughs> brands or like an art collective or something. I'm just keeping nice. those to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just hoard them. Just hoard them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the way. So I I would say right now we do have incentives to share, but they're only in one direction, right? Our, our incentives mm. now are social. So if you have enough Twitter followers, you could share your streetwear brand ideas and get some social cred. You get some right. followers, you maybe maybe become a little more of a thought leader or something like that. And that's that. But probably other, worth it to me, right? Maybe, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, some people like maybe. the thought leadership mantle, some people don't. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's mm -hmm. certainly a nice to have, but maybe you, I don't know. <laughs> maybe you'd want credit down the line. Yeah, I want credit and I ideally would want to build the thing, right? And, and get that whatever fulfillment that is out of that. I don't know how it is with you guys, but part of my motivation when I'm working on a thing is, is some is often personalizing it in some way, feeling some attachment right. or relationship with it. And so it does help to be working right. on a thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, you can definitely find that it's hard to get other people to work on something that is important to you, but isn't necessarily there. You know, it's like, it's, right. it, there's something about that. There's something about like your own personal projects. Yeah. Yeah, like now that I've finally started a startup, like I'm surprised at how I ever was motivated to do, like to work on other people's things, <laughs> right. right? Like right. the amount of motivation yeah. I get from working on, you know, this thing that I have some sense of ownership of, the innate sense of ownership, right? It's not like Agreed. delivered to me as part of corporate culture and like, oh, you own this product. It's like I, I came up mm. with this thing or as at least a large part of it. And that's like really motivating, yeah. So, 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 what are the ways? What are what are the things that you're doing? I know part of your project that you're working on, uh, Matt Stevenson, in crypto has to do with this with this question. Is that is 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 that still sort of yeah. your main focus these days? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so Plank is the name of it, and um, it's alt IP, so mm. kind of alt intellectual property. Um, trying to devise a, a system which can reward the open sharing and interaction among ideas with, with attribution, which, you know, attribution is a, a thorny yeah. problem as we can discuss if, if you want, but it's, it's more or less a system of incentives designed to enforce attribution mm -hmm. plus. So that might include funding as well. That makes a lot of sense. Attribution in, its, in itself is like a, such a difficult thing. Just look at every startup, every really successful startup ever, and the people who are left out of the sort of founding story. Yes, absolutely. And, and like we talked about earlier right. with the social incentives or the thought leader incentives, those push in the opposite direction, right? Because I'm more of a thought right. leader if I came right. up with this idea by myself. And so I shouldn't be sending right. links or saying where I got the idea or what have you, right? I was going to ask like what the sort of background on the attribution problem is. Because the way I think about it is simply like that comic where, um, you know, someone... There's two people, one hands something to the other saying, I made this. 
And then there's one interstitial frame yeah. where the person's <laughs> holding this new thing. And then they say, yeah. I made this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so um, I, I think there were two like seeds of inspiration for me. One comes out of the fact that science and the scientific community has done this somewhat well in a decentralized manner. Certainly not perfect, but the citations being community enforced, you're in trouble if you don't do it. That's something that science has pulled off. So that exists as a model, which is kind of cool. And mm -hmm. the second piece um, is just about NFTs themselves, which is the idea that there is a digitally scarce thing now that used to be physically scarce and just no longer exists. And that um, are that is manuscripts and um, artifacts of idea creation. So mm -hmm. it, it just happens to be the case that when Einstein scribbles e equals MC squared on a napkin or writes a note to a bellboy, people buy that at Sotheby's for right. you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. And that no longer exists because the natural aspect of idea creation is just in a LaTeX file or on a computer otherwise. Right. And so, um, you know, there are there are things that you can do that are scarce and you might want to make them scarce digitally and try to connect the two. But this is something that's just naturally digitally scarce and we have nothing that's capturing the scarcity. So it felt like a natural fit for NFTs. Right. And so yeah. you you you're going along about your day and you see CryptoKitties yes. and you're thinking about this stuff and suddenly you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I'll say a little bit for Bitcoin, too. I think my first, this yeah. is embarrassing, my first ever Google search around Bitcoin is, what does a Bitcoin look like? Yeah. Which is... <laughs> That's a good I question. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I would ridiculous. Love to, yeah. I want to go browse through my history and see what I did. What, what was yeah. the first thing I searched? Because I was just trying to figure, yeah. like, what is what does it look like? Well, you know, the idea that that... I just took it for granted that it looked like a thing. It had successfully right. created this illusion in my mind that... I mean, maybe it's not an illusion. That's probably not the way to talk about it. But this idea that there is a thing called a coin and it grows on a Merkle tree and, you know, <laughs> you can, you can like send this. it. Yeah. And that's, there's a sort of magic in that. Um, and I don't know, that, that feels like a, a big part of it too, right? Like mm -hmm. you can combine mm -hmm. that and that's an intrinsic reward for sharing an idea at the outset mm, right? is you yeah. create this thing that has value and then if you allow people to get some piece of that value um like almost buying a future in it then you can enforce attribution or, or help encourage attribution because now they want us they want you to be uh attributed as the first because they have some share in the future value of the mm. collectible of your thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's so it's so interesting there are so many other companies um coming at this sort of sort of exact problem from from a less um like ip sort of centered way you know archetype which 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 went under you know it, it was going to be the the sort of fulfillment of the meme economy, and of, uh, you know, and um, and ultimately the vision of that could have could could have housed something like what what you're describing, right? Um, but it's more general, um, and 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 also t um, the District OX one uh, meme factory, similar thing where it's like you're sort of almost buying futures in ideas, essentially. Um, but your take on it is, is I think really important. It's like this sort of incentivizing an open sharing of, of, uh, of scientific ideas, of creative ideas. I think it's, it's such a cool idea. 
Yeah, I think so too. And I, I will say, like, my relationship to the word meme is complex here because yeah. memes—it's a—it's a tough word. Uh, yeah. Memes on the internet means yes. pictures of Drake in succession, yeah. right? Right. But you know, you can—if you say that, somebody can say, "Well, if you read Richard Dawkins, yeah. the blind yeah. watchmaker," right? Like, there's, <laughs> yeah. Hit him with the Dawkins. Yeah. Like, okay, yes, I understand. There's like an origin story to the word meme, but it, it really does exist as two different things. And one, it absolutely I mean, right. does, yeah. Drake memes are well rewarded in a social system for the most part, I think. And so you do need a new kind of meme. I, I don't know. Like, it feels like that meme exists on the Internet yeah, under the president's and it kind of flourishes. What is an idea right. on, in your conception currently, what is an idea on Plank called? Uh, it's called a glyph. A glyph. Yeah. I like glyph. that. I like yeah, that. Thanks. A glyph. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And, Which and, is sort of like a mark. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you want it to feel etched in stone in some sense. I mean, the other nice thing about uh, <laughs> a blockchain is that presumably it's not going away, if, at least if you pick the right mm. one. So, um, right. If you pick the right one. Yeah. Right. Listen. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you use uh, a non fungible, like avoiding yes. the non, yes. it's a non non fungible yeah. termed word. Um, it is, it's like a highly specific to your medium word that explains yep. what it is yeah yeah i like that a lot and i think that's super necessary have we come up with a better name than nft yet is this are we are, um i haven't heard one no, um i mean my my perspective is still in the long term that there won't be a word in right. much the same way that we don't have a word for scarce physical things because right. the, it just, just is just right is right right <laughs> they just is they just is. so i do want to say one one other half to the plank Thing that I think makes it a little bit unique is uh, mm. there's also a system of prizes which are non-fungible as well. This this came out of some research that the, you can resell a Nobel Prize and an Olympic gold medal and so what? on, and they mm. yeah and they yep. sell for higher than That's the material they're made out of. Right? right. So the idea that prizes themselves should be non-fungible was another insight. And then if you combine those two mm. things. Um, that helps enforce attribution. The real problem being that, like, why would you ever attribute when you should claim the idea as your own? Well, if prizes only right. go to things that are attributed and part of the prize goes upstream, then right. that aligns incentives in an interesting way. So two parts I like about this are, um, one, I think the key uh, part of academic uh, attribution generally working is that it's community and culturally enforced. And it feels like Plank is sort of taking that chucking in a tiny bit of economics to to kickstart mm -hmm. this cultural enforcement mm -hmm. and then creating that that you know understanding that things should be attributable i think a norm is is uh maybe underrated right i mean the idea of selecting the longest chain is ultimately a norm right that's a way of solving a coordination problem and so i think norms being the center of how you solve these public goods problems is probably the right way to go yeah that's something that i think is really interesting um is that the social contract is incredibly powerful. Um, the hard part is starting one, right? Like, I don't really know how social contracts get started. We pretty much only see them once they're there. Um, things like, um, you know, people not talking on the train in certain countries or picking up trash on the ground. Like, these are all just social contracts, right? And so how does that start? How does that start? Yeah. Yeah. And does it start like this where you, you know, throw a little bit of economics in and uh, a little bit of doing the right thing and suddenly you've got this social norm that 
is self-fulfilling and bootstraps itself. Yeah, it's true. And some of these practices are a lot more sticky than others, right? Like I think an example is standing up at a concert, right? Standing up and sitting down at concerts. Right. Are more or less equivalent it's a tragedy in tragedy of the commons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I like standing up, but I don't know. Maybe I haven't tried sitting down enough. And I've never sat down in a general <laughs> admission section. So maybe that's great. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I'd like to sit down yeah. in the middle of the mosh pit. <laughs> yeah, just see what happens. Right. I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so you mentioned that the prizes are uh, tradable, which makes a lot of sense when you look at gold medals and makes a lot of sense when you look at Nobel Prizes. I'm wondering. Um, is that a belief that you think extends to most accolades? Um, and if so, ex- uh, let me know why. And if not, like, where do you think that line is? For example, like if I, um, I don't know, if I get a high score in a video game, right? Is that tradable? Right. So I, I like, I feel like you guys have talked about this really well on an earlier podcast where I think you mentioned the dollar as an example of something that's kind of like, quasi-fungible, right? Because it's got a serial mm. number. And I, right. I I guess I'm tempted to answer in the same way, which is to say that, right, it, it depends in the sense that, you know, there's going to be this totally mixed bag of things that will make a particular person's high score memorable or meaningful or sellable or whatever, right? If it's mm. the guy in King of Kong, what, I think right. it's the documentary. Right. If it's right. his high score. Sure, sure. Then it is. Yeah, yeah then it is because right. there's this incredible story. There's a story, it. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I don't know. Like, it's the story. It's the authenticity. But it could also be completely random. I mean, like rare Pepe's or right. something. It's one of those things like art where it's just you start to try and give a kind con- of concrete answer and – You've, you've missed something. It's one of those, I, I think about this a lot now, is the difference in um, how you represent this highly complex, for example, with art, right? Like the provenance of something is this complex narrative. Um, it's like, oh, it was produced by this and curated by this. And then this person had it in their home or like, oh, it was the artist's original copy, etc. And condensing that is an interesting problem slash like, do you lose something um, as a side effect of that? And I guess in the same sense here, like, like if you've just condensed your, your high score, your accolade into this, you know, token that is sort of sans story, like it doesn't exist on its own, right? It it exists in the context of this very abstract narrative that explains why it's worth something. And it seems like that's something that would have to be paid attention to. I'm not sure if it's possible to condense that into like, for example, just bits on disc. There are things that we gravitate toward as meaningful. I think first is a pretty obvious one. So just to go back to the evolution example, I mean, to this day, you can find fights over whether Wallace or Darwin had the particular germ of the evolution idea Hmm. first, right? And for them, it it could be a matter of milliseconds. It really doesn't matter, right? Something about... uh, it being shield. first. Yeah, yeah that, that seems to confer some sort of legitimacy. And in the realm of ideas, um, that is probably going to be a big one, if not the big one. But but I do think it'll probably depend on context. My, my intuition says that that's primarily due to the fact that time is not something we control. Um, and so it's authentically derived huh. curation mechanism. Um Whereas only one can be first and therefore, right, like that is more authentic, perhaps more real, more verified. Like what, what is that? 
that word for it's, that. Uh, it's objective. It's like an objective measure of, because right. time, you know, to us, yeah, like you're saying, it's this sort of like ar- objective arbiter of value because it's something, not something that we can that mess sounds, with. Sounds dead on to me. In a, in a universe right. where entropy worked differently, would you care about first? Maybe not, right? Right. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. If we could go, if, if yeah, if we were like right. the aliens in, uh, what was that movie? They're big tentacle aliens. I know she said the elephant it's, guys. I know she's yeah, elephant about. aliens. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. I was thinking about the movie. I think about the movie all the time. It's so good. Arrival. 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 Oh, oh fan- yes. Okay. Fantastic yeah. film. Fantastic film. Uh, wait, tie that back now. I missed the metaphor. Well, so so if you were uh, one of those tentacle alien creatures, like first wouldn't have. I mean, I don't think they probably even have a concept of first because mm. because they exist in a totally different. Uh, right, of time. Right. All time is happening. I don't. I, I don't know if they ever completely explained it, but it was like right. the past and future and everything. And which is which is something that I'm co- constantly thinking about. Is is time? Is you know? It's it, and scientists don't know. They don't actually know. F- it, you know, with math or with physics, they don't know why. Right. Yes. Time goes we experience forward. time the way that we do. They don't know. Right. They don't know why. My friend brought that up to me recently. And he was saying that the, like, time is interesting in that without time, all of existence is just sort of random, randomness, random points. Um, But time strings them together and gives them meaning in a localized context. And so, like, if you think about, oh, I'm here right now, how did I get here? You can follow this thread all the way back until, you know, when you went to uni and decided what your major was. Or you can go even further back to, like, those first forming memories where, you know, butterfly effect all the way through. Right. When Stories. In reality, it's... Right, exactly. In reality, it's this sort of random thing. But with time, you can form this narrative around it that, you know, kind of justifies itself. And that gives a lot of these things meaning. Mm. Yeah. Um, speaking of giving things meaning, I would love for you to tell the other, another story that you told that blew my mind at the NFT summit, the one about the, um, the island with the, with the, yes. with the st- stone. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. St- the, the tablets and things and. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, the, to contextualize it, um, this was right after Rubini had. <laughs> oh yeah. Rubini. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had written something right. about how no. No culture had ever had a currency, and so I, I think it was important, or had ever had multiple currencies, or something. So right. Oh, right. Because because the the idea yeah. is that is that things were like um, a barter system or something, and then they yes. and then suddenly they sort of evolved into currency. Right. Uh, he 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 repeated this old kind of canard in economics, which is the origin story of money. It used to be barter, and there was a devil coincidence of wants problem um, that was difficult to solve, and it was solved by the technology of money. And the anthropological evidence is that that was never the case. Never the case. uh, Money was often debt, or it was something, you know, sorry to use the word, non-fungible, right? These were unique uh, historical relics or pieces of jewelry that conferred a certain style or what have you. And the well-known story of yeah at least within the crypto community everybody knows the stone money story that um they would have these enormous stones some of them at the bottom of the ocean and some of them you know just sitting outside somebody's house and they would just say this is owned by this person and uh then they would transfer by just saying oh now it's owned by this person (laughs) um that as this kind of interesting story of proto money but the anthropological record shows that these were not just fungible money that these things had a name 
and uh, many of them, maybe all of them, had stories. So, you know, this particular stone was mined by this person or this king uh, or head of the village. I don't remember if they have a king's system. Um, sent for this one, and this person died while getting it over here. Right. And the story would be attached. And as I understand it, there is still a mystery as far as what drove the value of these individual things. So um, the Germans who came over and tried to do a good study of this, it didn't seem that it was just size. Like that right. might be a natural, the bigger the stone, the more the value. Right. There was more to it, and there, you know, it's, it's speculated that um, the the history and the names were important and probably drove value. In just the way that we were saying, in literally just the way that we were saying that like the King of Kong guy's high score has value versus yeah. just a random, yeah, it's the exact yeah. same thing at work and and it's the exact same that you thing you were just saying uh matt condon about about how you know we make meaning by looking back at things like that's what gives everything meaning right it's just like looking mm. back and and, mm. and sort of following the threads and 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 putting it all together and it all makes sense right uh, right yeah i love i, well, I, love I certainly that want to own one of those yeah. Yeah, yeah, I want to own one of those now. Especially one at the bottom of the ocean. Ideally, yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like a land space on the moon. It's, I was it's, just thinking that. It's, it's so cool. There. Yeah. Yeah. We should do it. We should create a star registry for the yap stones that still exist. It's, right? it's Ooh, very it's, good. It's also like uh, when uh, Cards Against Humanity sold, they bought an island. Do you know about this? They bought an yes, island off of yes. Maine and they sold plots. Yard. They called it Hawaii mm. Two. Hawaii Two. <laughs> and they sold yard yard square plots of land on an uh, island off of Maine. Yeah. That my would, friend has know. his uh, his certificate hanging on his wall in that's the apartment. See, so I guess technically you could go do whatever you want with that plot of land. Right. And so this money was non fungible. I, I really like the idea of non fungible money. I like to think about it as collectible quarters. Um, mm. They're like the, the mint guarantees that they're worth 25 cents. And, you know, if someone doesn't care about the collectability of this quarter, they will go and spend it for 25 cents on whatever they want. Um, yes. But to some people, they're worth more for this narrative, this idea of scarcity, this um, sort of collective shared passion sort of thing. Absolutely. I, I think that's the right way to think about it. And, I, I, the only caveat is that you probably need it to be pretty liquid. Um, mm. I, I can't remember the name of this particular problem, but there's this idea that if you have two monies circulating and you know one of them has some intrinsic value to it, that'll go off the market and people will only exchange the ones that are, right. um, that are not valuable to them. But if you have something very liquid where the value is personal or historical or what have you, then this can flourish because... You can trade and exchange, and that can sort of create its own value. And it has this, um, I think, as we talked about, this this kind of nice social feature that if we exchange two things, I can talk myself into the one I got being better, and you can talk yourself into the right. one you got being better. And there's no objective answer to that. And so that has right. like a, that is a smoothing component. I really quite like that. Yeah. It's it's definitely one of those beautiful things where you know it's not a zero sum game, not. Yeah. One person lost right. and one person won. It, you know, both of you might have gained something by that. Yeah, by absolutely. trading Pokemon cards. Yeah, yeah. If they have that component, whereas if they don't, you have the winner's curse, where it's like, oh well, now I just see I got a bad deal. I could have gotten that on eBay for cheaper or what have you. I'd been chatting with a friend in a Slack chat, 
And we were um, going back and forth on this idea of how do you bridge the physical and digital um, like realms, like AKA tying a digitally scarce thing to a physically scarce thing. Um, and the benefit of that is, you know, you get this, you get the properties of digital scarcity that can't be forged, perfect provenance, et cetera, um, cryptographic ownership, plus the niceties of a physically scarce thing being relevant to us as human beings and, you know, maybe necessary for things like shoes. And we came up with something we think is novel and we're like, okay, we could probably get a patent on this. Um, and we started thinking like, okay, how do we get a patent? And I looked it up and I was like, the internet says we need witnesses. How do you notarize a Slack chat? (laughs) (laughs) And I realized this is probably perfect for Plank. Yeah, that's very true. That's it. That's 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 yeah. a use yeah, case right absolutely. there. You would, yeah, that is that, that is yeah. absolutely a use case. Yeah, that happened Be- yesterday. Because then, yeah, yeah, then you have that, and then you Amazing. you let it out into the world, and you let people use it. But the provenance of it is always is is always yeah. provable, and and I guess the idea yeah. is that some subset of any you know money or anything that accrues as a result goes back to that the people who are in that slack chat. Yes. How how would that work? Um is that in the realm of plank or is that delegated to like the patent office? Um how does that Yeah, it's in the realm. So I I should say I, I was a little hand wavy about the the incentive design, which is mm-hmm. it does involve things like uh Harburger taxes and uh, and so on to actually make this stuff flow, but I would say it's supposed to be a substitute for the patent office. I mean, gotcha. you can certainly use this as a registry, right? I mean, it's reasonable for the blockchain to be some sort of like you know mailing an envelope to yourself, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. But which I have done, by the way. Oh yeah, have you for for music or for something else? For music, yeah. Back in back in the day when I actually like cared, <laughs> I don't know when I was like a teenager. You know, it's like, someone's going to yeah. sell my songs, man. Like, my <laughs> shitty, shitty songs. I'm like, I'm just going to send myself a package that way, you know. Anyway, yeah. And so for how would I, how would I, as just a normal person who kind of has an idea that, you know, I can't really pursue this now. I'm busy. Um, but I have this thing. I think it might be uh, worth, you know, it definitely has a lot of economics attached to it, like a, lo- a lot of economic upside, particularly if, you know, it works, like, um, wh- how would I use Plank to, you know, how would I use that? And how would I be satisfied? So you would create a glyph. And so first of all, let me stop and say that I, I don't know how many projects there are that are stuck on this problem that you may have solved, right? This, uh, what some people call the Oracle problem, right? How you easily connect something off chain and make it on chain right. and have those two things tied together constantly, right? right? Um, like that could unlock a tremendous amount of value. That may be, I mean, you know, not to talk it up, but I just, I do want to mention no, that as please far do. as we know, yeah, right, it <laughs> it, will we're, talk. you're incentivized to, to share <laughs> this idea. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, as far as economists know, uh, all growth and wealth is, is new ideas, right? You mm. used to have to make fire by rubbing a stick and now you have a matchbook, right? Like that's wealth. And so <laughs> ideas are wealth and encouraging your ability to share this and your willingness to share it if that's the holdup for a lot of problems, I mean, that's an enormous thing. It's like a, it's like a Chamberlain issue, but Mm -hmm. as soon as you solve it, well, it's not yours anymore. Like you say, and patents are simultaneously too strong and too weak. So you make a glyph for it. And that could be your envelope in the mail. Uh, like, like 
Jonathan mentioned, um, where you mail yourself something. But it can also be a form of alt intellectual property, where mm. in the same way that intellectual property is really just our own social norm, right? It's we're going to legally enforce uh, a temporary monopoly on this idea. Well, groups can just get together and have their own social norms. And that's what Planck is attempting to do to sort of mm. solve this via norm. I like uh, that way of thinking about it. Thanks. And so uh, once I've got this glyph, what do I do with it? So you have it, first of all. You, you display it on dot, I think. Yeah, right? absolutely. The, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> Sign up for then, alpha. Uh, well, so you, <laughs> you trade it. You allow it to accumulate value. I mean, my, when I've talked to scientists about this, uh, I get asked that question a lot. Like, well, why would I create a glyph for it? I mean, the easiest answer is you used to handwrite something, right? Darwin wrote something on the Beagle, and now those pages are worth $100,000. Today, you don't. So you should have a digitally scarce version of what you're doing because mm -hmm. someday that might matter. Like, it maybe matters now, but that might be valued. And so there's an intrinsic value to creating one of these things because now you just have this sort of historically collectible thing tied to the creation of an idea, which is kind of magical. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that in and of itself does is an answer. But what's interesting is how do you build the incentives on top of that to make it worthwhile for you to not only um, create a digitally scarce version of your idea, but to attribute the things that inspired and to have people uh, uh, award them and right. ensure that that attribution and provenance is sort of protected and communally enforced. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. the hard part. But I do think the the aspect of just digital scarcity around the creation of a collectible idea has some sense behind it. The founding document of, a, of an idea being scarce. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that previously physical scarcity of writing in a book and making that native, but in a way that is, you know, it's physically inspired, but digitally native is yeah. is particularly uh good especially if it feels authentic right like yes. i guess that is something I'm, I'm interested in how do how do you make this act of tokenizing an idea I, I won't say tokenizing um but how do you make this idea of crystallizing an idea feel authentic for example like when i write things down uh in my notebook i keep these notebooks and it takes a little a, a tiny bit of hubris to keep these notebooks right yeah. And recognizing that hubris is um, sort of inauthentic, right? It, it feels well, it's it's well, it's not inauthentic, I get you. but it, I get you. it's a side effect. It's a, it's it's separate to the ideation process, right? It is a yeah. an external factor, and right. so it, it it influences it. It's a bit of ego. It's exactly, a bit of ego in the mix. Yeah, it's a lot of ego. Yeah, and so how does that apply to to Planck and the creation of glyphs? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that. You need to make the act of creating a glyph not feel like you're pounding on your chest in some sense, or you're saying this right. is the greatest idea of all time. And right. uh, and I do think that's that's uh, that's crucial. So one of the um, one of the organizations we're partnering with is called Researchers One, and that's uh, an open journal. That's uh, it's a really cool project, allowing um, scientists and people to publish. And the idea would be that I mean. A, assuming we get this worked out, that creating a glyph would be something that's just along with publishing. So it, it ah. feels natural in that sense. Ooh, right? like, I love it. I love it yeah. as a side effect of some other authentic behavior, which is just getting yeah. your work out there. Right. right. So Ooh. it's not yeah, screenshotting totally a Slack channel and creating a glyph. Right. So, 
Though I will say, uh, even then, I don't, I don't think that destroys the value. You're right that it mm-hmm, might push mm-hmm. in the wrong direction. But uh, you know, one of my favorite examples is um, James Naismith's typed rules of basketball. Right. That wasn't the moment he invented basketball. That right. was what he typed up because he thought it was going to be good enough to post in a gym, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was authentic in its way, but like he also typed it up to make it look nice, and it wasn't exactly the moment of creation. And so right. just just pointing out that like the distribution aspect might have its own sort of value to it. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, just a small drop in the bucket. This um, it's, it's it's just you creating a social norm around uh, you know creating glyphs is is going to be important and minimizing. Um, the already small impact of just the fact that you are creating something is a uh, point at an ego, right? Yeah, um, agreed. agreed. But yeah, I don't, I don't think this is an insurmountable problem in any sense. But I should say, you're the one who called attention to that authenticity thing and phrased it that way. So I appreciate that. Do um, love that word. I do love it. I, I, do. <laughs> I, I do. I think we, I think it should probably be like a digitally rare authenticity drinking right. game. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You get drunk every episode. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Every time, you, every time Matt says authenticity, you have to buy a CryptoPunk. <laughs> there you go. It's true. No, but I think it's right. I don't know. I, I feel like I've learned sincerely so much from your podcast and your stuff jonathan your kitty one nine one four three is like one of my go-to <laughs> examples of i mean i don't know it was you did that in what january or february yeah, right like right after on, yeah. crypto kitties yeah right. and you were already thinking hard and doing this fascinating stuff around creating these stories and provenance for the stuff i don't know i mean just thank i haven't you guys it both. hasn't i haven't it hasn't added any value to it yet we'll oh. see if so, you know someday someday that song will will mean that that punk, that, that well, kitty is worth like, yeah. you know. Now that I'm remembering it and now that we're talking about it here, we've just added to that lore. We've added to that narrative. That's true. And yeah, there you go. I want it. I sing it all the time. There's two of there's well, there's a lot of your songs that are I mean, a, a lot of them are earworms, but two of them really get stuck in my head and that's one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really like the other recently. one uh, no stone bridges <laughs> out of iron anymore. Yep, yes. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, I really want that one, oh, and oh, I really oh. want the mall one where you're sitting on the the little tiny train oh, the in the train, mall with yeah, your family yeah. and yeah. just going tiny around in circles. In yeah. yeah, love that, that one. So, good. so so fun. Uh, yeah, true. And I, this is a real obscure one, but I love the Gravity View one too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, I that's heard... so funny. I'll tell Zach Katz that he'll, he'll, he'll be happy. <laughs> too. Yeah. I, I like I like the the obscure like yeah that's great <laughs> yeah yeah I, I that's a deep one. cut yeah I heard that one naturally like I was I was doing oh, something really? at WordPress and I heard it and I was like oh that was a catchy song and then I watched the video and the video was really fun and so was that was before like, we met or was that at- before oh how funny before yeah yeah in fact I think I uh, I mentioned you to my girlfriend as the guy who sang the Gravity, the gravity like excitedly, song. I was like the Gravity View song. I said <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I said. It's like you never know what you're going to be she known for. She's like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> that is amazing. I wanted to ask about um, specifically around how behavior changes when you inject, um, you know, economic uh, incentives into a system that was already. Um, sort of operating, maybe not efficiently, certainly, since, you know, we're kind of tackling this problem. Um, and this isn't specifically in the case of Plank, but in, you know, systems like, for example, ETH Trader, very topical, 
um, now has this uh, tokenized points called donuts, which you can use to vote on polls and change the subreddit banner. And um, they've taken this idea of karma, which is completely valueless, untradeable internet points, right? The, the joke of useless internet points crystallized. And they've turned it and connected it into dollars and then hook this up to, for example, the ability to change the banner. And that's obviously changed human behavior. And I want to know what your perspective on that is. Um, sort of like, yeah, just how you think about that in general. So I think that adding financial incentives um, is one of the great features of that, that blockchain allows. I think it can be really cool for incentive design, but I think mm -hmm. it can also be done really carelessly. And, you know, the, the paradigm of bad crypto incentive design is look at the world's incentives. Let's add money to those exact incentives. Right. Um, I think the joke I, I used at the summit is, um, you know, in, in economic theory, if you're on a date, and the date's going well, you know, one guy said, one guy says to the, to the girl or what have you, you know, this date was amazing. I'd really love to go upstairs with you and, you know, go to bed and to sweeten the deal. You know, I'd like to throw in $20. Um, and so if you, if you write That's that up, some in real a, incentive. Yeah, exactly. Right. exactly. Like if you write that up in game theory, it's like trivially better right. to have, you know, if you were already going to go to bed with somebody, why not go to bed with them and have $20, right? It's just better. And so naive thinking about incentive design is, well, let's just take the incentives and we'll add money and everything will be better. But as right. you can hear with that example, it can blow up spectacularly, it can right. create all sorts of issues. And, and without, uh, you know, without commenting on something directly, a lot of the issues come down to crowding out, right? So mm. you're crowding out this sense of trust or this sense of intimacy or whatever mm. um, with money. And so I mm. think it's really useful. Or authenticity. Or right. authenticity. The, yeah. the sort of more abstract value that you derive from whatever it is you're doing. Yes. So, so we've, it, like, with respect to Plank, we've tried to be really careful about... Mm using money only where it didn't feel like it was going to crowd out some natural human sense of right. trust or yes, authenticity. Oh, that's so interesting. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I like about Planko in, in this specific scenario is that, you know, these ideas are already have, you know, economics attached to them implicitly. And so it's not like we were in a community and suddenly there's money and we can, you know, pay to get to the top. It's, you know, people are already thinking about this. It doesn't really um, affect their thought process too much. Yeah, very true. Yeah, the example I like to point to is um, like Wikipedia being, you know, a, a beautiful example of people doing a bunch of work for free and no real good reason. Um, well, a ton of a myriad of good reasons, um, none of which right. are the money. Um, right. And, you know, chucking dollars at that problem um, isn't really going to solve anything. It creates a completely different incentive structure. I, I do suspect that um, NFTs are quasi-fungible stuff like we were talking about before, which, you know, we didn't come up with a good name for it, but um, <laughs> that helps, right? Mm. Because there's this concept in um, in game theory where you call call things high-powered and low-powered incentives. Okay. And the idea, low-powered incentives are softer things and they can be like, uh, you know, approval, disapproval, sometimes mm. status. But right. I, I think trading and intrinsic value you know, it like straddles the border between those two things. And the real right. issue is when you use high powered incentives and they crowd out low powered incentives to be a little jargony. And I think quasi fungible mm. money probably helps. It's my right. Yeah. That reminds me of, I was reading this book. It's called life after Google. Um, really good. Especially if you're listening to the podcast, you would like it. 
Um, it's uh, just talking about a bunch of different things related to Google and the evolution of how we pay for things. And on one side is this idea of just the precision of fungible money. It's you, you have money and you are paying for something. Um, and on the other side is the idea that you are the product um, and you're paying for this with the slippery coin of information. And this is Google's business model um, for the most part is, you know, they give you this thing for free in exchange for your information, which makes their algorithms better, which helps them realize their longer term goals of um, well, and that and that they use to sell the advertisers. Right, exactly, and that's that's a big part. Is you know, advertising advertising requires your data um, right. in order to be more effective, or at least that's what we think. But it's probably true. Retargeting is probably pretty effective, and so quasi fungible money fits right in the middle of that where you have this mechanic where you don't think it's money or maybe you don't think it's money as much as like dollar dollar bills y'all and <laughs> you can still spend it like it's money but you don't run into that problem where you feel like you're spending money right like it's it's this beautiful middle ground of you get the benefits of money without the downside of thinking about money yeah and um, i think We'd still need something better than QFT, but I think the quasi-fungible, yeah, <laughs> it, is, yeah, yeah it makes sense, right? Because you want it to be non-fungible and meaningful where it can have meaning and provenance mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Actually, this is a this is a close to a question I have for you guys. But one of the first things I was looking at when I I got interested in NFTs was has anybody looked has anybody tried to track down bitcoins that have a unique or special provenance we, we've mm. talked about this a lot. I, do, do you know the answer to that matt i'm not sure i mean it's entirely possible and people are doing it for um like fraud prevention reasons but i would love to see someone do that for artistic reasons right like like the, the example i think that we gave once is like you know kanye once owned this bitcoin or whatever like yes. this, right. this, yes. this piece of bitcoin passed through that's pretty cool. You can see like what the first Bitcoin was, right? The first Bitcoin ever mined. Right, you could minted. probably track those UTXOs totally. I mean, I imagine that's valuable. So my understanding on this is that the UTXO system creates some weird identity problems, right? If you try to track it, because you can't tell which one was refunded in a UTXO and which one was transferred to Canyon. So you get this probabilistic thing. And so there's a bunch of different like ways to measure like where this thing came from but most of them end up as probabilities of you know this thing is there's a 20 yes. percent chance that this is from a, an exchange hack so like right. maybe you don't want to use it so so to my like skeptical economist <laughs> way of thinking that's really good news right mm. because if bitcoin had been easy to make non-fungibly for 10 years, it would be surprising that people hadn't just been using Bitcoin for it, I feel like. Mm, mm -hmm, I don't know if that's mm -hmm. a weird way to think, but that was like the first thing I searched mm. for. And I found people trying to track down the pizza Bitcoin on... Right. Uh, See, that, that's much more interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the history. But it's yeah, like the, the problem was, well, when this person spent something from their wallet, right? Like half of it went here and half of it went here and which one is... Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the nature of fungibility. Right, right, exactly. So, so I do feel like non-fungible yeah. specific tokens, wonder, even if they're just UNs, add something. Anyway, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, totally, they do. Um, and I don't know if that's particularly good for you know money, right? The ideal form of money. Um, and w one of the things I wanted to ask you as a behavioral economist is, 
um, how, as we experience U.S. dollars today, we use them as they're they're practically fungible. Um, yeah. Online, though, almost none of our money is actually fungible, including Bitcoin and excluding like privacy coins, whose entire purpose is to to be like perfectly fungible. Mm. Um, but like, for example, if you pay through PayPal, like PayPal has all of this information attached to you. They kind of know where they got where you got that money. Someone paid it to you, or it came from your bank account. And so there's this um, this lack of fungibility when you pay online that we currently enjoy when you pay for cash at like the bodega, and it doesn't really matter where those money, where those dollars came from. Yeah. Um, how does fungibility in a currency affect how people use it? Um, beyond the obvious, like oh, they won't use it to buy drugs anymore. It, it does <laughs> tie into the the Gresham saw question, or at least people would would say that it does, right? That mm. there, the extent to which something has unique value to you would reduce liquidity would be the way you'd maybe think about it in, in monetary mm. terms because you'd be less likely to give it away. So you might need some offsetting liquidity injection to counteract that. But that's just, I mean, as far as I can think through it, it would just change your monetary policy a little bit without, uh, without losing some of the uh, ability to add value by allocating these non-fungible tokens to the people or non-fungible currencies to the people where they have unique personal or situational or story value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think your point, your question about the PayPal thing is really interesting. Um, so you're right, like there is this history attached to it, but the fact that it's in a database somewhere seems yeah. to break something about the way, at least the way I think about provenance and history, right? Like the idea that I got a PayPal from Kanye might kind of matter to me, but the idea that you got the money that was PayPal to me from Kanye, like it's it not going like to be the broken. same for some reason. Right. Yeah, right. right. Whereas if you had the actual thing that you could watch, which mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. I mean, we all have our favorite preferred analogies. I feel like the way I've been explaining it to grandmas lately is it's almost like NFTs are sitting under a glass case and you're saying, this is owned by this person, and now no, this is owned by this person. Or, right, or right. That's right? a good. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. that matters now. Like that, this was owned by a person, and we can all see it. So, right. D- does that does that answer your question? It feels like it breaks something uh, when you do it via via non blockchain means to me. That's, right. That's like an intuition. Certainly. If, if I had to add something to that to maybe make it a little more compelling, I'd say there's there's some work in. Um, that developmental psychologists do that discusses this a little more specifically, like why objects seem to have a sort of permanence to them Mm. um, in some contexts and not others. Right. And, and that's something that you study in, in babies' brains. And I think it's weirdly applicable. Like blockchain seems to provide some of these features in a way that you, you, you don't have it. Right. uh, That's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's the object more- permanence of non-fungible money, quasi-fungible right. money. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's work to be done on it. I've done a little bit of it, but I don't know if that's going to be able to see the light of day. That we'll is see. quite yeah. nice, though, that you can have contextual object permanence. The idea being that if I don't care about the <laughs> specific context that you know this this um, in which this money is non-fungible, then I can ignore for all intents and purposes i can have not i can not have object permanence and just kind of ignore all of that and use it as if it were fungible yes and that's really interesting as long Mm. as the the 
the non-fungibility properties, the like properties that are specific to that that one thing, as long as those are generally positive and I don't lose anything by ignoring them, that seems like it would solve primarily the liquidity problem that I assume is Gresham's law. I haven't looked mm-hmm. it up yet, but the the problem of like how do you create an efficient market where uh, there's only one of everything? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, that you need quasi to solve the Gresham's law problem. Right. Which Gresham's law is ultimately a selection problem. It's just right. you select out the things that people um, find intrinsically valuable right. and get as fungibility. That makes sense. I, I Now this makes a lot of sense. Now that I know this this Gresham's Law, I, I kept bringing up the um, example of hay and how you sell, or corn, how you sell corn on like the stock mm. market or in a market or something, and you, you tranche it by quality. Yeah. Um, and there's like a, a group of people, I assume, a company that, you know, rates your corn and tells right. you if it's A, B, C, or D. Right. And that's how you take this incredibly non-fungible thing, which is just plants and make them (laughs) quasi fungible by tranching them. Yeah. Which I mean, this is a little late to be getting into it, but, uh, but maybe we can talk about this later. Yeah. There's a really fascinating, um, aspect of the history of money that has to do with taxation and is very much tied up in problems specifically to corn and corn quality. Some historians of money argue that, money was created because of the needs of the state to have something that they could tax. Because what you got is you'd say, well, I'm going to say that you have to give me enough corn. Well, you only get the worst corn then. Well, I'm going to say it has to be class A corn. Well, who rates it? Well, what's the measure that we say, you know, that every little village is going to use that makes sure we get the same amount of corn. You need something standard across everything. Yeah. It's this forcing function for objective valuation. Yes, exactly. And so there is an interesting take on this from the book, Seeing Like a State, which I mentioned, which is that people who have to like monitor or enforce taxes or what have you really, really like purely fungible money because right. it ensures that they have a low information load to get what they're getting because they don't care about the story of your corn or whatever, right? They just want to make sure you're giving them the right stuff. Um, so they want to enforce fungibility. So, I mean, I consider it an open question whether left to their own devices, people prefer one mix of fungibility versus non-fungibility or another. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's an open question. Like the history seems to suggest that people prefer some element of quasi-fungibility or non-fungibility as money. I mean, objectively, it seems like a perfectly fungible money is you know, ideal from a, an economic standpoint, right? Um, but from a humans using this money standpoint, is it? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the word they use in seeing like a state, which I like, is legibility. Like, legibility. Yeah, it, fungible money is maximally legible, right? That costs right. $100, that costs $50. Whereas quasi-fungible or non-fungible is less legible, right? Well, Unless you know the, unless you sort of know the code. Exactly, you have to know yeah. the code, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that code doesn't scale. I mean, that's why... I think about doesn't. this in the context of reputation, too, um, the idea being that your reputation is incredibly contextualized. Yes. Um, it's, it's so, so like we do this at, at an incredible, like humans are incredibly social creatures. We're very good at this and we don't think about it, but we, we have this massive calculation going on all the time about like our reputation in different contexts, et cetera. And one of the major failings I think of the vast majority of reputation systems is that they aggregate 
they, they, they create a forcing function for valuing all of these reputations the same in order to, for example, derive a credit score. Yes. Right. It's that, it's that basically that, right. that, that <laughs> money, that creating of an objective valuation, that's the problem, especially yeah. particularly in reputation because it is so contextualized. Yeah. That's so interesting too. If you think about then the China experiment, right? The thing right. That they're doing mm. in China that right. that that puts a whole that what you just I haven't thought about that way, but that that is fascinating. China's reputation experiments are actually like totally admirable in the sense that yeah. we are doing the exact same thing in crypto land, like trying to hmm. right. you know make Reddit with points and you know curate yeah. reputation and whatnot. It's just that yep. they are doing this across all possible contexts of human life and right. aggregating those into a single number. Right. And that so they they yeah. want it to be the state wants it to be legible in a way right. that the yes. state wants it to read, be legible. Yes. But it's but it's not because like what you're it's saying. Inherently it's inherently not. Yeah. It's inherently not. It's inherently human. Right. Yes. Like we are human yeah, that's that's actually problem. that's an interesting and that's what point. makes it so creepy that's what that's right. like what that's like i guess when you hear it and you think how creepy that is like that's what's creepy about it it's like you can definitely see like you're just saying like oh well the idea of knowing ahead of time if you can trust the person if like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that 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 seems helpful it's that totally useful like it would be right. a good thing yes but that is not something that can be just right. stripped down to social like credit the, exactly yeah. And it works for monetary credit, like the existing credit system, because we already have money as a forcing function for aggregating that value and making it objective. Mm. But anyway, uh, that is its own rabbit hole. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. <laughs> yeah, let's let's see. Yeah, let's do, could easily go on for another two hours. Um, yeah. So Matt Stevenson, do you have other than Plank anything that you would like to uh, plug? To I was just telling uh, Matt Condon that we just passed. A thousand all-time downloads across all our episodes. Yeah. So, hey, cool. To the, to the thousand Triple people that digits. have ever downloaded. Awesome, awesome. Uh, anything you want to plug? Yes. No, I mean, uh, I, I'm dedicated to working on Plank. I know. I feel like the Arovian problem is going to be my life's problem, and I'm hoping Plank's going to be a direction to solve it. And follow follow Matt Stevenson at uh, Twitter slash GlyphX0. Yeah. GlyphX0. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Matt Condon, anything you got um, going on? We're going to do a private alpha of Dot. Um, go to excellent.co and sign up for the mailing list if you are interested in that. That's um, cool. And yes, indeed, people will be getting stickers. Stickers. Um, stickers, um, which are X- quasi-fungible. There yeah. Signing up right now. XLNT.co. Sign up for the... Excellent um, with none of the vowels because we're a startup. We don't need vowels. You're a startup from 2007. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to be uh, in a few weeks at East Denver. Cool. Um, so if you're going to be there, please find me and say hi. I'm, I think I'm going to be playing some songs and hanging out. Nice. Doing my song a day thing. So um, also... Uh, I just dropped my album to celebrate 10 years of, of Song A Day. Yes. Um, which I'm really proud of. So nice. please go download that. Uh, you can get it at jonathanman.net slash body, the word body. Uh, yeah, and that's it for me. I'm Song A Day Man. You can find Matt at uh, Matt G. Condon. Re- review us on iTunes or something. I don't know. Actually, not iTunes. We don't like that. Go to Tune. Give us, give us 
crypto tokens. Give us some tune notes. <laughs> cool. All right, guys. This is great. Talk to you soon. Great talking to you. Awesome. All my friends don't know what they're doing. Even the ones who've been successful. yourself in some way I always thought that I would know what I was doing by now but I'm just as confused as I ever was I don't think that this feeling ever goes away I'm not sure it'd be a good thing if it does if it does someday if it Think that